Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. On this first show of 2018, we'll take you on a tour of the world's hotspots, starting with the unusual unrest in Iran. Will it spill over into a full-blown revolution? Then, a war of words between Trump and Kim over the size of their buttons. What's next with North Korea? Also, the two-state solution. Is Israel making it a virtual impossibility? And the United States withholds a billion dollars from Pakistan. Will that nation finally get tough on terror? All that with top minds in foreign policy. Finally, war in the South China Sea. How likely is it to happen in 2018? GPS viewers looked into their crystal balls. I'll tell you what they, what you, told us. But first, here's my take. The most enlightening commentary on what is going on in Iran right now was written 162 years ago. In his book on the French Revolution, Alexis de Tocqueville explained, revolutions are not always brought about by a gradual decline from bad to worse. Nations that have endured patiently and almost unconsciously the most overwhelming oppression often burst into rebellion against the yoke the moment it begins to grow lighter. The regime which is destroyed by a revolution is almost always an improvement on its immediate predecessor, and experience teaches that the most critical moment for bad governments is the one which witnesses their first steps toward reform. Why are these protests taking place in Iran today and not in, say, North Korea? This is the question Tocqueville answers for us. The deeply antagonistic relationship between Washington and Tehran makes it easy to forget that Iran today is actually more open than many other countries in the Middle East. Compare the status of women and minorities in Saudi Arabia and Iran, and you will find there's really no comparison. Over the past two decades, Iran has consistently elected presidents who are opposed by the hardline establishment of that country. In 1997, it elected Mohammad Khatami, who is now under virtual house arrest. Then came Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, whose radical rhetoric and manner masked the fact that he was a rank outsider to the mullahocracy that had run Iran since 1979. Ahmadinejad was a street-smart politician with no theological credentials and was thus deemed a threat to the cleric's hold on power. Today, it has another reformist president, Hassan Rouhani, who has been twice elected, the second time with a thumping majority. Iran's hardline establishment has actively sought to undermine Rouhani's reform agenda. In fact, some serious observers of the country speculate that the protests have been engineered by the hardliners who will then use them to justify a crackdown and total end to reform. Off the French regime, Tocqueville wrote, 
The abuses with which the French government was charged were not new, but the light in which they were viewed was. More crying faults had existed in the financial department at an earlier period, but since then changes had taken place both in government and in society, which made them more keenly felt than before. Similarly, the Iranian economy has always been a dysfunctional mess, a toxic mixture of protectionism, socialism, and corruption. But in recent years, people have had their hopes raised by the promises of reformers, the expectation that sanctions would be lifted, and the knowledge of life outside Iran. In fact, the protests were triggered by a series of economic reforms. Ian Bremmer's smart 2006 book, The J-Curve, argued that some countries are stable because they are closed, North Korea and Belarus, for example, while others are stable because they are open, like the United States and Japan. The former shield themselves from the winds of globalization. The latter are flexible and resilient enough to adapt to these forces. The most difficult period is when a country is moving from being closed to being open. If the regime is enlightened and strategic, it might be able to reform enough to weather this rocky transition. But there are two other more likely paths. The chaos produces a return to repression or a collapse of the state. Iran has the ingredients for a revolution. Over half the population is under 30. Large numbers of its youth are educated, yet unemployed. Almost 50 million Iranians have smartphones with which they can learn about the world. And reformers have consistently raised expectations, but never been able to deliver on their promises. But the regime also has instruments of power, ideology, repression, and patronage, all of which it is ready to wield to stay in control. What appears most likely for Iran is a period of instability in an already volatile Middle East. For more, go to cnn.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Iran's national police said on Sunday the ongoing anti-government protests there are now over. The disturbances have ended, a spokesman declared. But perhaps he was more than a bit premature. Fresh calls for protests reportedly came shortly after that announcement. When will the unrest really end? What is the end game? Thomas Erdbrink joins us on Skype from Tehran, where he is the bureau chief for The New York Times. And here with me in New York is a top expert on Iran, Karim Sajdapur, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for Peace. Uh, Thomas, let me ask you first, uh, can you tell us anything about the, uh, the news that Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has been arrested, that he has been out there uh, fueling the protests? Uh, and does that suggest that there is a schism within the regime? Well, thank you, Fareed. Uh, look, uh, there has been a report that Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has been arrested. And of course, uh, one of Iran's top generals, uh, General Jafari, uh, head of the Revolutionary Guard Corps, has implicitly uh, accused uh, President, uh, former President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad of being involved in this protest. But I, uh, I don't know if this points at, uh, at the real involvement by Ahmadinejad into this protest. Um, of course, there is a schism in the regime. Uh, these protests have a lot to do with the, the uh, upcoming, um, uh, with the succession issue for, President, for uh, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. 
uh, and also play into the ongoing uh, debate here between hardliners and reformists. Uh, and why is that so? Well, because President Hassan Rouhani um, uh, released and uh, publicized part of a budget, uh, gave out very sensitive information that incited many people, information that said that religious institutes here and parts of the Revolutionary Guard Corps were getting lots of money from the upcoming post-government uh, budget. At the same time, the first protest, the first the protest that kicked off this wildfire that, that spread across the country was, uh, according to many, initiated by hardliners. So definitely there's a lot of uh, there's a lot going on inside the establishment. Uh, it does strike me, Thomas, that it's fascinating that the, uh, the what seems to have fueled this, as you say, were Rouhani's decision to publish the budget for the first time, revealing how much money the military, hardliners, religious foundations were getting. And, of course, the cell phone revolution, where you have 48 million smartphones in, in, uh, in Iran, uh, also something Rouhani pushed for, faster Internet speed. So there you have the two things, you know, that, that were caused by openness rather than, than closeness. Karim, what do you make of this uh, schism within the regime? You know, political scientists say that's a very, very tough moment for dictatorships when you start having internal divisions. Well, the Islamic Republic of Iran has been shrinking. The insiders have been shrinking. I think what will be key is whether there will be schisms within Iran's security forces. We haven't seen schisms within the Revolutionary Guards. At a popular level, I think this is interesting because you have a lot of people protesting because of the price of food. You have some people protesting because of lack of freedom. But we still haven't seen a critical mass of people who are protesting both. And I think one of the reasons is because Iran's regime, the one thing they do very well is repression. And they're very good at decapitating any alternatives to themselves. Um, labor leaders, intellectual leaders, Iran's Vaclav Havels and Lekwalesas have been exiled and imprisoned. But, and the key person remains the supreme leader of Iran, who is now almost the longest serving leader, dictator in the world. I mean, a couple more, a couple yes. older than him, but... He, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei is 77 years old. He's been supreme leader since 1989. He hasn't left the country since 1989. And I think, you know, we're dealing with the psychology of 80 million people, but also the psychology of one individual autocrat. And in 1978, five months before the Shah of Iran's government collapsed, the CIA assessed with high confidence that the Shah's regime was secure. What they didn't know was that the Shah had advanced cancer and didn't have the mental or physical fitness to quell an insurrection. And likewise, we don't know about the, the physical fitness and mental fitness of Ayatollah Khamenei. That's something that we'll only be able to tell in retrospect. You know, what's striking to me is if, if you do look at when these regimes start to seem vulnerable, it really is more when they start opening up. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, you know, U.S. policy, particularly under the Trump administration, but actually in general, is always to tighten the screws, which tends to make the country more isolated, make it more nationalistic, make it more uh, resilient. And if you think about Cuba, where for 50 years we tried to do regime change. So what is the right strategy when you watch this kind of openness? Uh, how, how would one encourage it and not reinforce the hardliners. You know, one of the paradoxes of Iran is that the worst elements of the Iranian regime resemble North Korea and the best elements of Iranian society want to be like South Korea. And it's a, a challenge for U.S. foreign policy because to prevent Iran from becoming North Korea requires political and economic isolation. 
But to help Iranian society become like South Korea requires political and economic integration. So it requires a very deaf, sophisticated U.S. approach, which is very difficult because the official slogan of the Iranian regime is death to America. So invariably, every American politician wants to be opposed to the Iranian regime and support opponents of the Iranian regime. Uh, Thomas, in, 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 what does the mood feel like in Tehran? I mean, you've written about how how much smaller these protests are than the Green Revolution or the Green Movement was in 2009. Why, why, why is that? What do Iranians tell you, particularly in Tehran, where, as you've noted, the, the protests are quite muted? Yeah, um, well, look, a lot of people in Tehran are basically middle-class people seeking stability and security and proposing gradual change within the system. Now, that doesn't mean that also these people are incredibly upset with anything, everything that's happening in the economy. But at the same time, they see Iran's outside enemies, uh, President Trump, if you will, Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, the Islamic State, um, that are also threatening their existence. So these people feel that any form of uh, increased uh, increased uh, tensions on the street might might hurt them. So what you get in Tehran, the place where three million people went on the streets in 2009, is that a lot of people are saying, well, you know, I share a lot of the things that the protesters are saying, but I'm afraid of violence. I'm afraid of instability. Reed? And, and you do have uh, the regime constantly pointing out that uh, you'd be playing into Donald Trump's hands if you were to continue with these protests, uh, which is a fascinating in and of itself. Thank you both, gentlemen. Fascinating discussion. Next on GPS, the Koreas come together, the U.S. and Pakistan drift apart, and the world worries about American leadership. I will talk to Richard Haas, Jane Harmon, and Dan Sinor about all that and more when we come back. There's much to talk about in the world, and we're going to do just that. We're going to start with uh, North Korea. At the beginning of the week, we had the battle over whose nuclear button is bigger. On Wednesday, the telephone hotline between North and South Korea was re-established after two years. At the end of the week, the two Koreas announced face-to-face -face talks to be held in two days. And then on Saturday, Trump said he would absolutely be willing to talk to Kim on the phone under the right conditions. Joining me now to discuss it all are Jane Harmon, the former congresswoman from California, who is now the director, president and CEO of the Wilson Center. During her 16 years on Capitol Hill, she served in key roles on the Intelligence, Armed Services, and Homeland Security Committees. Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of A World in Disarray, which is now out in paperback with a new introduction or conclusion or some, something souped up. He's a top foreign policy advisor to both Bushes. He was last in government as director of policy planning under the second President Bush. Dan Sinor was the chief spokesman for the coalition in the early months of the Iraq war. He's been a senior advisor on foreign policy to both Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney. Much to discuss, Jane, but it seems to me the big news here is not one more Trump tweet, uh, you know, which has gone on, but that the North and the South are moving towards some kind of possible deal. Well, it's a conversation about the Olympics. Let's understand it's a sports event in the next few weeks, but that will get world attention. What I like about this is it's an opening conversation to the right conversation. And the right conversation includes South Korea, uh, the United States, I would hope China, uh, possibly Russia, which has been a major proliferator to North Korea. Let's understand that. And others. And that conversation is about 
how to reach a deal, which has to be a freeze for a freeze, before North Korea becomes totally nuclear capable. F- freeze of North Korea's arsenal in return for some steps that, that the U.S. and South Korea would, right. would do. Freeze of their arsenal and their further development. The only thing they haven't mastered is the reentry cycle for their missiles. But, Richard, that means Trump and the administration, to be fair, not just Trump, the entire U.S. foreign policy establishment, would have to walk back from the declared goal, which is the total denuclearization of North Korea. Of all presidents, Trump seems... You know, but I, I ask this as a question. At one level, he's very flexible because he doesn't really believe in anything. But at another level, for him to walk back and to, to uh, you know, to make a concession seems not in his character. Well, there would be a way to say that denuclearization remains the ultimate goal, but we would be willing to say accept certain types of interim arrangements, whether it was a freeze on testing, a freeze on production of warheads and missiles. The danger in this, though, is it's a bilateral dialogue between South Korea and North Korea. It's unlikely that at the top of the South Korean agenda will be just this, North Korean nuclear weapons and missiles. South Korea has historically cared most about the the stability of the peninsula for for good reason. So I would feel an awful lot better if the administration would drop its preconditions to a dialogue and get a seat at the table. That would be the best way to defend American interest here. How much does it matter that in the midst of all this, Trump is doing these, these tweets Look, I think that the um, international community and our different players around the world have sort of become to become to like discount these tweets. It's like it's noise, but they really deal with Tillerson, Mattis, Pompeo, McMaster, Haley. And so long as those players in the U.S. government are dealing with them in a sort of conventional way, there's a discount factor applied to the tweets. But doesn't doesn't, you know, his response to the book, which we will get to later, uh, doesn't it show that you can only control him so much? Absolutely. And I also think there's a danger internationally if the president starts to look irrelevant. I think more and more players around the world are saying, yeah, we'll deal with his cabinet secretaries, we'll deal with his national security advisor, the Trump, the president and his tweets doesn't matter. What happens when it does matter? What happens when the president lays down the line on an issue that he wants to enforce and the world is saying, oh, it doesn't matter, it's just the president on Twitter? It it was Trump who focused on North Korea first, which Obama didn't. Trump personally, tweets or no tweets. So I think he should be given some credit for that and also for a focus on Israel and Palestine, which I'm disappointed how it's playing out. But nonetheless, if he can make a deal or be part of a deal on North Korea, which his predecessors couldn't make, uh, we ought to salute him. You say in, your, in, your, in the new book that the United States under Trump now is the principal disruptor uh, in the international system. That's a pretty strong charge. It is a strong charge. It has the virtue, however, and the unfortunate virtue of being true. Look, you wrote an important book years ago about a post-American world. The one thing neither you nor I imagined was the idea that that would come about not because of the rise of China or someone or because of American exhaustion. It simply became, came about because of choice. Donald Trump does not see many of the virtues or advantages in American world leadership, has pulled the United States out of any number of global arrangements from the Paris Climate Pact, questions about, uh, you know, the... We just didn't attend the conference on migration. Boycott the only country in the world not to attend. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, TPP you know, was a major decision in the third day or whatever of the administration. So this is an administration that has voluntarily abdicated the traditional American world leadership role. And the sad truth is there's no one else out there who's ready and able to fill those shoes, certainly not in ways that are sensitive to American interests. So this is a, this is a consequential presidency. Don't get me wrong, Fareed, but it is a, you know, an expensive presidency all the same. And isn't that the problem with, with these episodic problem solving with the, you know, North Korea? 
it, is it going to work if the United States is generally pulling back? Can it enforce a deal like that? Well, I don't know. The prior deals, the deal Bill Clinton made wasn't enforced. And then Bush uh, 43 abrogated that deal, which I think was another strategic mistake. The U.S. doesn't seem to have anymore uh, a global strategy. And when you link North Korea and Iran and Pakistan, which I know we're going to talk about, uh, the proliferation problems there require a global strategy. And I agree with Richard that we need to lead. We haven't been leading for a long time. I don't blame this all on President Trump. All I was saying was at least he is calling attention uh, or did first thing in his presidency to what is the most urgent proliferation problem. And he's gotten some things right. From a policy standpoint, he got two resolutions through the U.N. Security Council, 15 to zero votes. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. Toughest sanctions we've ever had. The relationship between the White House and Abe in Japan is very strong. Tokyo seems to be very enthusiastic, directionally at least, as it relates to North Korea and, and security threats in the region with how the White House is handling it. So they have made some, they deserve some credit. It's very easy to criticize them. And I agree that there's no sort of global comprehensive strategy, but they, it doesn't mean they aren't getting some things right. And I do think on North Korea, they have gotten some things right. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about something else that they might have gotten right on, on Pakistan. The Trump administration is playing tough, announcing it will withhold almost all security aid to Islamabad. Will that make Pakistan's government finally stop giving safe havens to terrorists, as President Trump, Trump claims they do? When we come back. All right, now another topic, another Trump tweet. This one came on Monday and said... The United States has foolishly given Pakistan more than $33 billion in aid over the last 15 years, and they have given us nothing but lies and deceit, thinking of our leaders as fools. They've gave, they've safe haven to terrorists we hunt in Afghanistan with little help, no more. Well, the flow of aid has been shut off. On Thursday, the administration announced it was withholding almost all security aid to the nuclear-tipped nation. Will that stop Pakistan from offering terrorists safe haven, as the president claims? Joining me are Jane Harmon, Richard Haas and Dan Senor. Dan, you had to deal with this uh, in, yeah. in, uh, e even in the, in the Iraq situation. Pakistan is, it seems to me, a problem with no solution. Yeah. You give them money, they, they help jihadis. You don't give them money, they help jihadis. Well, they, you don't give them money in this environment, and they not only continue to help jihadis, but they potentially start moving to other players right. globally, like China, uh, and you lose less influence inside the country in dealing with the government. This is the, there's a rationale for doing what the administration has done, and it always the rationale is always obvious, except for now. You can always say, but ex except in this moment, it, it feels dangerous to do that, and that's how I feel. I feel like in this moment, I spoke to someone from the White House over the weekend, though, about this issue and the rationale behind it, and they said, look. We are getting some back and forth. This wasn't just a Trump tweet. There was actually a policy process behind this, and they are actually getting a reaction from the Pakistani government that they think is positive, that it is actually a little bit of a wake-up call that could produce results. Remains to be seen. I, I tried to do something in Congress. In 2009, I wanted to condition our aid on uh, wrapping up A.Q. Khan, who was the father of the uh, Pakistani uh, nuclear bomb. And they were... They are basically the, sold, sold, sold the secrets to North Korea. To and, North and, Korea and uh, to Libya. Yeah. Uh, that was the bomb that was intercepted, and that's when Gaddafi went clean. And by the way, his murder, I think, has, has persuaded uh, uh, Kim Jong-un that he should never abandon his nuclear uh, ambitions. And I don't think he ever will. We can just contain them, hopefully. But back to this. I think this is the right move. I understand there's a downside. Some of the experts at the Wilson Center are warning about this. But I've been to the tribal areas where the Haqqani network 
is headquartered. It's very close to the Afghan border, and they have murdered our troops for years, and they have fomented uh, these uh, unstable uh, efforts in Afghanistan. And I don't think this ever changes unless a sharp message is sent to the Pakistani government. You had to deal with this when you were in the bush. Many times. Yes. Yeah. They cut off at one point. Um, they cut off the... There's only one uh, access road, supply road, into Afghanistan for U.S. troops huh. that comes through Pakistan. Um, there's another one, but the Russians sh shut that down. So could they retaliate by... Sure. They can, this will complicate our ability to resupply forces in, in Afghanistan, put, put us in slightly more in the, needing the Russians. But let me say two things. And as you said correctly, going into this, no matter what we've done with Pakistan, we get screwed. Work. I mean, it, uh, I get that. Uh, I, I've been on both sides of that when I was in government. One is, though, did it make sense to do this so publicly? I would have said no. I would have done this quietly because what you're now getting is the kind of nationalist reaction that makes it more difficult. Every once in a while, it's okay to do diplomacy diplomatically. It's not the worst. It's not the worst thing that the United States uh, could could do with Pakistan. Secondly. This ought to be in Donald Trump's wheelhouse. What we want with the Pakistan is not an alliance relationship. Who are we kidding? They're not allies. The idea, by the way, that they are considered a non-NATO ally, a major ally for getting arms is nuts. But I would say we ought to have a transactional relationship with them. Quietly say, we will give you this, uh, this piece of equipment, this aircraft, in return. in return to this. What we can never do with Pakistan is assume or presume that they will do what we want down the road. Every inch of the way, this has to be a transactional What's relationship. What's terrible about this is, you know, if you look at history, it has never been possible to destroy an insurgency when the insurgency has a safe haven exactly. across the border. And that's what the Afghan insurgency, yeah, it has a safe haven across the, the, the border. where they. Can. And do we think that the PACs did not know that Osama bin Laden was living there for years? Or worse, they, they had to know. Either way, I'm not sure it's worse. If they did know and they didn't right. do anything about it, or they didn't know, it's a sign just how out of control Pakistan is. Uh, we, we've got to get to Jerusalem. Dan Sinner, you know Israel very well. Uh, what happened? Uh, what exactly happened? They, it's, it seemed like the Israeli right decided they were going to make it essentially impossible for there to be any deal on Jerusalem mm -hmm. that the Palestinians could accept and therefore kind of locking in the idea that there is now no two state solution. So uh, what the Knesset did is they, the Israeli parliament passed legislation that basically said if there's any change to the boundaries of the city of Jerusalem in the context of a peace deal, that instead of, right now, the law is if there's going to be a change, it has to either be passed by referendum or majority in the parliament. Now it says it's got to be a supermajority in the Two parliament. Points, right. so, so it raises the threshold for a deal that involves the future boundaries of Jerusalem to, to get ratified. The, the, the law, of course, can be overturned by a simple majority. So, so the, the reality right. is if there's actually a real deal that involves change boundaries to Jerusalem, which is, I think is unlikely to happen anytime soon. But if it were to happen, and the Prime Minister of Israel were behind it, that means his party is in control of a coalition in the parliament that they could get this law overturned. So I think it, there's a lot of heat around this uh, and a lot of concern. I think it's a little overstated. I do think, though, there is the, the White House is behind a lot of these moves, both actions the U.S. administration is taking and supportive of what the Israelis are taking, because they want to send a message to the Palestinian leadership. The train is leaving the station. The history is sort of, you know, moving past you. And unless you come back to the table without preconditions, more and more of these actions are going to be taken. Will, will Jared Kushner's strategy work? You've got a, a minute. The short answer is no. The longer answer is no. Look, the real question is the one you put on the screen. Is there still a two-state solution? Time is running out. If Israel wants to be a secure, prosperous Jewish democracy, it needs a two-state solution. And right now, 
the path it is on is actually a threat to the, to the Jewish project, to the Zionist project. And a lot of Palestinians are now saying, why not a one-state solution? Just well, give us voting rights in Israel. I think that that's a mistake. I don't think that will work. And, and pushing Palestine toward Jordan is a non-starter. That will destabilize the monarchy. The sadness here is there is an opportunity right this minute for the Sunni states plus Israel plus Palestine to confront uh, Shia expansion. You were talking about Iran before. That's the part of Iran's behavior that we don't like. They are observing the nuclear deal. They are not otherwise the spirit of the agreement. They are not doing the right things in the neighborhood. And this opportunity, which I commend Jared Kushner and, and Jason Greenblatt for trying to get this outside in deal, has failed or is failing. It's very disappointing. All right. When we come back, I will ask these three veterans of the corridors of power in Washington what they make of Steve Bannon's reported remarks about Donald Trump, in which he said many things, but among them, he has lost it. And the backlash against Bannon when we come back. Don't forget, if you miss a show, go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my iTunes podcast. The talk of Washington and the chattering classes for most of the week was a new book by Michael Wolff called Fire and Fury. Wolff's extraordinary access to the White House resulted in a damning portrait of the president. The most damning quotes arguably are from Steve Bannon, who said the president has lost it, among many other things. In the aftermath of the publishing, Bannon has been condemned and ostracized by the Trump establishment. How to think of it all? What's been the reaction around the world? Joining me are Jane Harmon, Richard Haas, and Dan Senor. Dan, you know and have worked with yeah. Paul Ryan. Um, uh, what do you make of this? I, uh, for, I think the book, I mean, I haven't read the book, but I've read the crowdsourced, you know, highlights from all the journalists who are reading it uh, intensively. Um, I think it seems to me like it's basically a colorful compendium of anecdotes that illustrate what we already knew about the president, about how the White House functions. But to the extent that it, this has catalyzed a real break, between the president and his architect of insurgency, Steve Bannon, I think is, is a big moment. And that's what will be most significant about this book. If you look at the last year, sort of bookends, the opening January 2017, we had the president's inaugural address where he talked about American carnage. It was deeply populist. It was very dark. It was basically a Bannon-esque speech. And then a year later, the year ended with a massive cut in corporate taxes by about a third, you know, a big deregulation campaign, both of which had strong influence by uh, Paul Ryan. You had judicial nominees swarming the courts in a strategy orchestrated by Mitch McConnell. Mitt Romney's running for the Senate. I mean, this is not exactly this like Bannon-esque insurgency. And in fact, at the end of this year, the beginning, the beginning of this year, we have Bannon being completely cut from Trump. And so I think what we're reminded of is you need experience, you need people, you need people with real knowledge on how to make government work. If you want to actually have a revolution in government, Donald Trump doesn't have this. Bannon is out. <laughs> but isn't it, isn't it a sign that Bannon has a point, which is that Trump came in as a populist. And as Dan said, I mean, what has he done? He's repealed Obamacare. He's cut corporate taxes. He's he's cut the the, the rate for the high uh, you know highest income earners. He's deregulated. Where is this helping the Pennsylvania coal miner well, again? I, I don't think it is helping that. I mean, there is a role for. Uh, insurgents in both parties. People are dissatisfied with the way the traditional parties work and they both should change. But I think there's a big role for a strong Congress and we've been missing that too. We may have a dysfunctional White House but we have a dysfunctional Congress. 
Bipartisanship is a dirty word. But it why poor Ryan is getting everything he yeah. wants? Well, I don't, I don't. I think that tax bill bought off enough people to get it passed. I don't think it's a popular bill. I think tax reform is a good idea. Uh, I think entitlement reform is a good idea. I think infrastructure building is a good idea done on a bipartisan basis. So my only pitch is, and, and I do want to say this on this show, uh, poor John McCain, who has been a strong voice for national security and bipartisanship, has a weaker voice than he did. And I just want to say to Captain John McCain, who has put the country and, the, and, and bipartisanship first, we're going to miss you. What do you, uh, you've been in White Houses. Have you ever seen anything like this? With I mean, <laughs> This is not exactly the Jim Baker uh, White House, if that's yeah. what you're getting at, or yeah. what it was under 41. If 41 was probably the most organized, organic White House, this is the least. Let me say one thing, though, about Bannon. I'm not, you know, Bannon may be gone. There may be alienation. But Bannonism is doing pretty well, what I could see. And look at it. The United States got out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The relationship with NAFTA is really in, in jeopardy. We um, are doing all sorts of attacks on the World Trade Organization. Immigration policy is what, line, is, yeah. is what it is. So you look at a lot of the things, and Bannon must be sitting out going, not bad for one year's work. This year, you could have a major U.S.-China trade confrontation. So I think it's just too soon to say that even if Bannon I, I, and the president, they, there's a you know, wedge between them. I worry about what they've done. So I, I would say I, there are parts of... Bannonism that are being implemented. But the truth is where the country has moved on issues like trade is not limited to Bannon. Hillary Clinton came out for getting out of the TPP. So I, I, I think this is a, a broader issue than, than just what's going on with this administration. I still believe that the president's most of his agenda is a conventional Republican agenda. And he's basically outsourced the development, the implementation of that agenda to experienced Republican is, hands. Uh, Ryan is, and is there, there's a quote, I think, in the book which says, uh, attributed to Mitch McConnell, the president will sign any piece of paper we put in front of him. Right. He just wants wins. He, doesn't ca he can characterize what those wins are. He just wants wins. He wants points on the but, board. But let's put the country first. I know it's trite. Let's try that. Uh, now that everything else seems to be in, in some tatter and American leadership is desperately needed, the voices that come forward from this and put the country first are going to be the voices for leadership for America. And that's wonderful. You know, Richard, the part that, that strikes me about this is wherever we, you, however you look at it, the one thing that does seem consistent is there's very little voice for American engagement in the world, um, you know, because on those issues where Paul Ryan, I think, feels very strongly, he's decided he's not going to fight Trump. Trump's instincts are very parochial and narrow. And the world is watching. I mean, you and I travel a lot. Everybody's struck by this inward turn of, you know, that the United States has both become isolationist but also unpredictable. Both of those. Uh, also, the image, the example we're setting is not one the rest of the world respects in many cases. A lot of people are telling me this isn't the United States I thought I knew. This is something very different. Mm -hmm. And we saw it this week at the U.N. The United States wanted to get the U.N. to go to criticize Iran, your previous conversation here. And we were on our own. The Europeans wanted no part of it. The Russians said, let's talk about Black Lives Matter. What it shows to me is the, the shrinking voice mm -hmm. Of the United States, because one, we're speaking less in many ways, or not speaking in discipline, thanks to the tweets, and the rest of the world is beginning to tune us out. We have moved into a world where others are deferring less to the wishes and the priorities of the United States. It means our interests will suffer. And what the president, I think, misses, Fareed, is he wants to make America great again. He can't make America great again at home if the world's beginning to unravel. I think at the core, there's a contradiction. 
at the core of his moving away from our traditional world leadership role and what he wants to bring about at home. And that's at the end what, what could be his undoing. And, and how, how do you think this plays out, you know, with the schism, with these, these you know, is, is the, do you think Trump is now feeling more secure to implement his own ideas, um, you know, because some of these things are, you know, with Pakistan, while there's the policy, clearly you can tell it's his almost personal frustration right. with the hypocrisy of our policy toward Pakistan. You can, are you going to see more, is, you know, is there going to be more Trump or less Trump in 2018? I think the, the focus of the White House and the congressional leadership in 2018 <coughs> is hanging on to majorities in the Senate and the House. If they lose, if Republicans lose the majority in the House, which right now, if you look at the polling, Democrats are running about 12 points ahead of Republicans for the House. If they lose control of the House, you could see impeachment proceedings begin. So at this point, this is not about policy priorities. It's the president and his team saying to the congressional leadership, what do we need to do to hang on to majorities? And I think you're going to see the House Republicans running on tax reform. Very conventional. But That's going to be the next year. they're going to move the policies seconds. to the center in order to get enough voters to keep them in office. It won't work to keep shrill, uh, extreme policies in place. And I think that tax bill is going to be unpopular. There's going to have to be it's a fix to the tax bill. the only thing they have to run bill. on. They're going to have to do a fix to <laughs> yeah. health care, not totally repeal it, because that won't play in states like Maine. Right. Susan right. Collins. The economy's growing at 3 and, or 4%. Yeah. They could get I, some credit. Well, right. Right. I think the tax could ultimately help them. All right, we've we got to stop. Thank you all very much. Fascinating. Next on GPS, this week it has been absolutely frigid on the East Coast unseasonably cold throughout the rest of the United States. The president says that cold weather like this means we need global warming. I will explain to you the science of why cold weather like this might actually mean we have too much global warming. Back in a moment. Want a daily dose of Fareed and his team? Now you can get it with Fareed's Global Briefing, the newsletter that gives you the best insight and analysis on global affairs. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed to sign up. And now for our What in the World segment. As 2017 was turning into 2018, President Trump angered many scientists around the world with a simple tweet. It read, in the East, it could be the coldest New Year's Eve on record. Perhaps we could use a little bit of that good old global warming. Bundle up. And it was frigid, hovering around 9 degrees Fahrenheit in Times Square. You would not know that it is so freaking cold you would by not. looking at that aerial shot. And it wasn't just in New York. The New Year brought an Arctic chill to the lower 48. It was disturbingly cold across most of America for much of the week. There was even snow in Florida the result of a so-called bomb cyclone pummeling the East Coast. And that brings me to the second part of Trump's tweet, suggesting that this bitter cold may be in direct opposition to concerns about global warming. It's a question that does seem to confuse a fair amount of people, not just the president himself. If the Earth's climate is warming so much that it's melting the ice caps, why in the world is it so bloody cold where I am? First of all, let's be clear. Global warming is real. NASA shows us that 16 of the 17 warmest years in the 136-year-old record have all occurred since 2001, with one exception, 1998. And even as we are freezing here, a lot of other places in the world are recording warmer-than-normal temperatures. To put some science behind our current misery, we can look to the polar vortex. Polar vortex. You might have heard this menacing name uttered by your local meteorologist as they warn you to bundle up. Polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> let's not go there. The polar vortex 
is the zone of frigid air that encircles the Arctic. Its counterclockwise spinning jet stream usually holds the bitterly frigid air in place up there. Think of it like a dam. But sometimes a change in pressure disrupts the spinning jet stream, releasing icy Arctic air southward. And the polar vortex blasts us with frigid winter weather. But is it random when this happens? Some scientists have new research that suggests that it's very much not random and that it is, in fact, global warming that is responsible for pushing the polar vortex on us more often and for longer durations than it used to. Here's how. Over the past 40 years, there's been a steady melting of Arctic sea ice, NASA says at a rate of 13% per decade. As the ice melts and the footprint of the polar ice cap shrinks, more of the ocean's surface is exposed and thus more heat escapes into the atmosphere. Studies show that the Arctic is warming faster than any other part of the globe. The authors of a new study published by the American Meteorological Society have correlated the increase of ice melt over time with more frequent polar vortex disruption. That dam way up north bursts and thrusts cold air down south to us. One of the study's authors, MIT climatologist Judah Cohn, told us he believes these episodes will continue and maybe even become more frequent in the future. And one more bit of bad news. As this cold Arctic air hits the lower 48, it displaces warmer air west and north during recent freezes of the East Coast. Warmer than normal temperatures have been recorded in Alaska, where the permafrost is already also melting and could be further accelerated in this kind of cold air, hot air feedback loop. So in short, we might be getting colder in many places precisely because overall we are definitely getting warmer. Don't let the president convince you otherwise. Next on GPS, what do you viewers think will happen in the world in 2018? War with Iran or in the South China Sea? Will Bashar al-Assad still be Syria's leader next New Year's Eve? Find out what you predicted when we come back. It's a new year and everyone's wondering what the future will bring. Last week, we told you about a project we have with Good Judgment Open, a crowdsourcing platform that asks everyday people to forecast the future. Some 2,000 of you have gone online to participate in the Global Judgment Challenge, offering more than 8,000 forecasts. So let's take a look at what you say is in the cards for 2018. When asked if there would be a deadly conflict between Iran and the United States this year, forecasters predicted only a 10% chance. But there is a slightly larger 15% chance of lethal confrontation in the China seas between China and another country this year. There's good news for at least one dictator. GPS fortune tellers say there is an 88% chance that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad will stay in power this year. And here at home, do your crystal balls predict that the Democrats will gain control of Congress in the midterm elections? You say there is about a 20% chance that Republicans will retain power in both houses, which is good news for the Democrats, who you believe have an 80% chance of taking back at least one chamber. There'll be more questions posted throughout the year, so visit gjopen.com slash Fareed, and we will, of course, check back at the end of the year to see how you did. This week's Book of the Week is Bruce Rydell's Kings and Presidents, Saudi Arabia and the United States since FDR. For decades, Rydell was one of the top experts in the American government on the Middle East and South Asia. Now he has written an absolutely fascinating, vivid, and highly intelligent book 
about one of the oddest geopolitical relationships in history. This book superbly illustrates the kind of talent we have in government and why it is so sad that the current administration won't use it. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.